Can you guys see me? Really? Are you really there? <laughs> Am I coming in clearly? Hey, welcome to Lion and Lamb's first new streaming service. I want to say, too, just on the front end of this, this is possible only by God's grace and the hard work and labors of Larry Stewart and Tad Powell. So thank you to them. They're in our studio this morning, such as it is. Hey, and I'm going to give you some announcements first just to connect on what's going on, what plans are in the short term. So next Sunday, if you're joining with us now, that's great. Next Sunday, we plan to stream again. The link we use may not be Facebook. We'll let you know, but we plan to stream again next Sunday. We may add Sunday school. We're looking at also the possibility of adding a worship time in there as well. But all that's in flux, so we'll let you know this week. Two, I hope you received a study sheet via Breeze email yesterday afternoon. If you didn't, it means you're not with us, you're not connected via the software that the church uses to send information out. So if you'd like that, and if Lion and Lamb is your church home, I hope that you will go to our website, hit the contact us link, and send us your name, your cell phone number, and your email so that we can add you to that, and you'll be appraised as we make announcements going forward. Uh, today's study sheet is also available at the website, so you can look at that, switch links on your, your computer or your laptop, look at that, or download it and print it. Uh, progress, I'll just tell you, if you're here in Topeka, progress continues on the building addition. Currently, doors are being installed, cabinets as well. Let me ask you this too, how are you doing as the world sort of quietly or less than quietly falls apart around us. How are you doing? And is there anything you need? We want to make sure that in all the ways possible, Lion and Lamb continues to love God and love each other by serving each other in the ways we can. In case I forget to say it later, one of the things we want to do is simply pray for each other. And the last Sunday, maybe two Sundays ago when we last met, we had a prayer calendar that all of you would have received if you were here and it's just a great reminder to use that prayer calendar to pray for others in the church day by day. We are certainly in historic times, and that's why we're live streaming today. I'll share with you a brief story before we get into the message proper. My daughter Bethany was uh, thinking about the current challenges, you know, telling herself the truth, uh, you know, everything's okay, God's still God, and she thought she was approaching a teaching moment with her daughters. So she asked some girls, do you know who's in control? And three-year-old Stevie assured her that Stevie was in control. All things were still going on apace. So with that, let me pray, and then we'll get into the message. And we're not doing the Heroes and Villains series this morning. We're switching gears just to speak in a timely way to what's going on in the moment. So let me pray, and we'll jump in from there. Father God, you are creator and sustainer of all things. Lord Jesus, you are the Savior of the world, and we know your Holy Spirit has been given to convict us and to bring us to faith in Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would not only bring some into your kingdom and your family through faith this morning, but that you would also sustain those who already call themselves your children through faith in Jesus. Would you give us eyes to see what you're up to? Really, Lord, faithfulness to respond to you in the ways that honor you. Help us to conduct ourselves in these days in a way that in eternity we would look back and say we were glad of. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, let me, my own technical difficulties here, let me see, there we go. 
Well, for all of us, there's a temptation to have a short-sighted view of life, and that sort of goes with the territory simply of being human. We're born into the time we know. We have our own life experiences. One of the good things about Scripture and literature broadly is that it invites us to expand our view of life and the world so that the slice of life we're considering isn't somehow unique, but we see how we fit into the larger scheme of Scripture and life broadly. And when the Apostle Paul wanted to give specific warnings to the Corinthian believers in his day, he did so by going back to the Old Testament books, primarily of Numbers, and he told those believers then, and God speaks to us in that same message today, that the trials you and I go through in life, they're not unique to us. Everybody has them. Everybody's been having them throughout history. And we've got lessons in the Exodus accounts of how God wants us to think about our current crises. So I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 13. This is the story of the Exodus generation. But Paul's will start there, and then Paul's going to take us back to the Exodus story itself and draw out lessons that we need to be aware of today. I'm going to read from the ESV. Hopefully at home you can read along with your own Bible. So 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 13, Paul wrote this, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, the the Jewish forebears, were all under the cloud. This is a reference to the Exodus, and in the desert, God's presence was there in a cloud. They were there under the cloud with God. They all passed through the Red Sea with Moses, God parted the sea. They were all baptized or they were identified with Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Moses, God's man, the the Savior, if you will, who led Israel out of Egypt and slavery. He continues, verse 3, they all ate the same spiritual food, the manna in the wilderness. They drank the same spiritual drink, the water, in fact he says, They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. And this is interesting because Paul's essentially saying, in the wilderness when they couldn't see God, he was still there with them. God's Savior Moses was with them. God was with them in his presence. But verse 5 says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And that's a nice way of saying they didn't get to the promised land. They died in the wilderness. Verse 6, one of the key verses for us, these things took place as examples for us. Now, Paul's going to bring in some of the particular trials or temptations the Corinthians faced in their day. So he says, example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 7, don't be idolaters as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's a reference to Exodus 32, verse 6. When Israel was at Sinai, Moses is on the mountain getting the law and the covenant. Israel's down on the plains breaking it. That's the context. So God speaking to Moses, the people are breaking God's law and covenant even as they're receiving it. So for the Corinthians, the particular temptation was idolatry and the immorality that was tied to that. Verse 8, He says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. 23,000 fell in a single day. That's a reference to Numbers 25, verse 9, when the Jews went and worshipped with the Moabites. They worshipped the god Baal at Peor, and God God condemned them in judgment. 23,000 fell 
in a day. Verse 9, he says, don't put Christ to the test as some of them did. And, and remember, Christ to the test, that's Christ's presence with Israel in the Old Testament. He says they were destroyed by serpents. That's Numbers 21.5. If you remember, they were complaining. They were unhappy with life on the road. God sovereignly sent serpents. They bit them. They could bring death. In fact, it's a glorious illustration. It's brought up in John's Gospel that Moses crafts a bronze serpent, lifts it up on a pole, and all the people did to be healed from the snake bite was to look at the serpent on the pole. The image of judgment and death, to gaze on it, became the means by which they would be delivered. John's Gospel brings that up to say Jesus was ultimately the serpent on the pole, the one we look to in the place of condemnation and death. We look to him, we believe, and we're saved from eternal death. Verse 10, he says, don't grumble of some of them did, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. This is Numbers 14.2, and this is after the spies bring back a report of the, the land that they're going to go into, and they really discourage the people. Verse 11 is the payoff for us again. These things happened to them all that time ago, 3,500 years ago, as an example but they were written down for our instruction, true not only in Paul's day and our day as well, on whom the end of the ages has come. So let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. We have particular trials in our own day. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. So that's the paradigm for us. We're going to join Paul by looking back at Israel's challenges or trials in the desert to see some lessons we can apply today. So the first one is simply, we're not unique. The trial that's on us now, the coronavirus and the economic uh, trial that follows it, are the particular trial we find ourselves in but trials generally are simply part of life, and that's true for all people, and it remains true for God's people. So our goal isn't, and it cannot be to avoid trials, but Paul says to endure them, and we endure them through faith in God and His provisions and His promises. The world is in the throes of not only the virus, the economic response and fallout may prove more harmful long-term than the virus itself, and yet none of this has taken God by surprise. While all of us will be affected differently, we go through the same trial, the same set of circumstances, but it will affect different ones of us in different ways. So some of us may find ourselves out of work and without resources to pay bills. And by the way, if you find that it's you or your family, you let your home group leader, the elders, church leadership know because we want to make sure that we're with you that we're supporting and encouraging and providing for each other in all the ways we can. But that'll be some of us. That'll be our challenge. Some will be fine financially, but they'll be challenged with physical sickness or quarantine. So some of us will simply be sick. We need to stay at home. Others of us can't afford to get sick, and so we're going to stay home. And with that, all kinds of plans have been put on hold. Life as we knew it's been turned upside down, and some of the trials we can predict, some of them we can't. This we know, the God who loves us and gave us Christ, the ultimate need met by God's provision, hasn't lost control today. We're as safe in His care today as we were a month ago, or three months ago, or six months ago. 
Our situation may change, and it's constantly changing, but not the object of our faith or the substance of our hope. Christ, the object of our faith, remains immutable. He's unchangeable. And the substance of our hope is God's word and God's promises and God's provision by his spirit. So we want to lock onto those. So we're reminding ourselves current trials are part of God's plan for us, for our lives. So we want to determine some things in our mind. Set aside our expectations and desires and ask God, Lord, what would you have for me in this circumstance? Lord, what is pleasing you? What is trusting you? What is following you? What is loving you and loving others look like in these current circumstances? 1 Peter 4.12 puts it this way. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is life as everyone's known it. The particulars change, but not the constant that life throws us challenges. So life as we knew it and expected it to continue has changed. God remains in control. We want to choose to embrace the current challenges by asking God what he wants for us in them. Now, with that, I want to go back to Israel as a warning and go back to some of the particulars in their wilderness wandering. In 1 Corinthians 10, three of the four examples Paul gives of failure in trials were from the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. And if you read through the book of Numbers, you realize in short order that Numbers shows us how not to respond in trials because Israel basically gets it wrong at every opportunity. One of the key ones, and the ones that I would focus on today specifically, has to do with grumbling or complaining. And the reason that's so significant, so signally significant, is because it tends to be on the front end of other kinds of failures. That is, we give ourselves the permission to grumble and complain, to not be thankful, and that leads to additional sins. In the ESV translation of the Hebrew and Greek Bible, Grumble occurs in the ESV 33 times through the whole Bible. 21 of those, this crazily disproportionate number of occurrences, occur in the books of Exodus and Numbers. They're all tied to Israel in the wilderness, their temptation, their trials, and unfortunately their failure to honor God in those. To grumble means to complain with a bad temper or attitude. And it usually means we're keeping the level of our complaint low enough that we're not simply inciting or inviting punishment or judgment, but it's there nonetheless. For Christians, you've got this in Philippians 2. Paul tells Christians, God's at work in us, to give us his will and the ability to do his good pleasure. And then he says in verse 14, Do all things without grumbling or complaining or disputing. Do all things without complaining. So grumbling or complaining, which tends to be our first response to difficulty, is my way of telling God he's falling down on the job. I'm telling God, God, you need to get with my program. That's the thought behind grumbling and complaining. And guys, it starts with us in our mind. It ends up in our mouth. And then it pollutes, it makes unclean those around us as we invite them to the same negative stance of unbelief. So we want to be careful, and grumbling is the key way I think this begins. If you turn to Numbers, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, fourth book in the Old Testament, at chapter 11, verse 1, 
the text says the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. Now, this is the beginning of the second year after they've left Egypt. So God miraculously brought them out from slavery. They've been with him at Sinai, and they've just started their desert wanderings. And they don't like the views. They, they, they wanted mountain views. They've got desert views. The climate's too dry. Their skin's getting dry. They don't like the tent they're in. It's drafty. It's too big. It's too small. The lives they had exchanged from Egypt, the new life, they've said, man, this is not what we bargained for. I hope none of that sounds familiar to any of us, the complaining simply about our circumstance. In chapter 16 of Numbers, verses 41 through 50, the people complain there about God slaying the rebels, Korah and Abiram and Dathan. They called into question God put these guys to death and their families, basically, because they were inciting rebellion by complaining about Moses, elevating themselves in a way God hadn't. In Numbers 20, verses 2 through 5, they complain about a lack of water. They went to Walmart and the bottled water was all gone. They complained about that. To each element of life, they found not to their liking. Their response was the same, and this is the warning to us. They grumbled and they complained. Now, initially, they complain against Moses. But remember, to complain against the authorities God's placed over our life is ultimately to be complaining and grumbling against God himself. They did it with food. There again in chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. Here it says the rabble among them. Some of the Egyptians, it's a loosely mixed group. They're not just Jews here. They, they're craving and they really want meat and they're weeping they feel so bad about not having their Egyptian diet. They say, oh, that we had meat to eat. And they start relishing the thought of the foods they had in Egypt. He says, but now there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. They don't like their diet. God's miraculously providing them food in the desert and they basically say they don't like it. It's like going to the grocery store and I'm looking for my steaks and my frozen pizzas, my fresh donuts, and all I find is a lousy tub of peanut butter. Or I look for my favorite and I'm picky about my toilet paper and I've got to settle for inferior toilet paper. How can we live like this without complaining? They couldn't, and some of us aren't perhaps, but we want to aspire. Numbers 12 The complaining in the desert wasn't just the rabble and it wasn't just the regular crowd. It was Aaron and Miriam. It was Moses' own siblings. And they basically said to little brother, hey, we're as good as you. In Numbers 14, there were dashed expectations. Moses, remember, sends out the spies up into the land of promise. He says, hey, tell us what we're getting into. Give us a sense of where we're heading and what that looks like. Well, they give this this description of the land and the people such that they tell the people, we can't go do this thing. God's promised us, but we can't do it. There's giants in the land, and bigger than the giants, there's walled cities. The thought of a land flowing with milk and honey had sounded good until they saw the obstacles in front of them. Of course, obstacles that they wouldn't go through, but their children would. The children that they said would die in the wilderness were, in fact, the ones that faced the giants and the walled cities and went into the land of promise. So Israel, they faced their own coronavirus. And to each aspect of their trial, they failed to give God glory. They failed to trust him for their needs. They failed to set their own plans and desires aside in light of God's priorities. 
So during our coronavirus desert trials, or whenever life's turned upside down, we want to be careful to remember their lessons from the desert. We want to be careful to check that first impulse to complaint or to grumbling, and instead squash that thought, say, Lord, what are you up to? How do I faithfully, intelligently interact with what you're doing? How do I honor you? How do I love you? And how do I love each other and others well? So let me give you an example of some of the ways the church in history has responded to their own coronavirus challenges. One theologian in the past century said, hope is still a virtue and despair is still a sin. And that's a good reminder as trials confront us. And this is the thing, and I hope this proves true in our day. Of all people, Christians should be able to face the vicissitudes of life, the trials unexpected or expected, with hope and in a way that not only honors God, but blesses our neighbors in a way that others simply can't because they lack the foundation and the resources. If you're online regularly, as I've certainly been, you'll know that there's tons of good articles and observations, not only on the coronavirus, but on a Christian's response to it. One of my favorites, you can look this up online, March 16th, 2020 at the Gospel Coalition site. The article was titled, The Church in Past Plagues. The author of that article is Glenn Scrivener. He also references the book, The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark, to talk about some of the ways the church historically has faced its own trials of virus and plague. So first, Stark points this out. In the early centuries of the church, the church not only thrived, but it grew significantly through times of plague and virus, disease. He cites the pandemic, just like ours today, the pandemic of 249 to 262, in which Stark cites up to 5,000 people a day died in the city of Rome. So people are dropping like flies all around the Roman Empire. Dionysius, the bishop of Alexandria, wrote this about the church's response to that plague. He wrote, Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves, thinking only of one another. They took charge of the sick. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death, the death of the ones they cared for, to themselves and died in their stead. Christians were caring for the sick. Some of the sick were recovering, and Christians catching the plague from those they had, they had helped were dying instead. In contrast to the response of the church, Eusebius in his history wrote this. He said, with the heathen, with the non-Christians in that day, everything was quite otherwise. They deserted those who began to be sick. They fled from their dearest friends. And this story occurred over and over and over again, such that the church, because of that, became known as the people who loved others regardless of the cost. Stark calculates that the number of Christians in the Roman Empire from the plague grew from 1 million to 6 million in the 50 years that followed the plague. So it had, it had multiplied by six times by the year 300 A.D., so think of this, the plague brought the brevity of life as well as the gospel into sharper focus. And hopefully that's what we're taking advantage of. Uh, Larry and I have had the conversation that 
and you can see this online also, that the gospel is going out online in ways and numbers that it never did before because of this virus. Absolutely unlooked for blessing, but an opportunity to communicate the gospel. And we remind those around us, we have hope in Christ for time and for eternity. And Christ, who like the bronze serpent was held up on the pole, Christ died for our sins. He's promised us eternal life. Those early Christians know Jesus' words from John 11, even if I die, I live. And guys, all of us, the, if our lifetime's 100 years, it's the blink of an eye and eternity's around the corner. And those plagues, those viruses, that huge toll of death reminded not only the believers, but those in whom they served that life is ending, it's short, it's precious. What is our hope fixed on? So Christians have the opportunity in these days to remind others we have a hope not only for time, for abundance of life in God's provision in Christ, but also for eternity. Our hope transcends our bodies and our lives because we have Christ. If that's not you, I hope you'll make that true of you today. In the 1500s, the Black Death in Europe, this is still famous, it's well recorded. Black Death in Europe, in a period of five years, up to half of Europe's population died. And friends, these are scales of attrition and death and suffering that we simply cannot fathom. You and I can't imagine these tolls today. That plague hit the city of Wittenberg in 1527, Wittenberg, Germany, where Martin Luther and his wife Katerina lived, and they chose to remain there, knowing that remaining there might mean they would catch the plague as well. But citing Matthew 25, Luther wrote in part this, we must respect the word of Christ, Matthew 25. I was sick, and you did not visit me. According to this passage, we are bound to each other in such a way that no one may forsake the other in his distress, but is obliged to assist and help him as he himself would like to be helped. Luther says, hey, this is the day when we love others as we would want to be loved. And consider this. Think of the lyrics to A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Luther had not only faced execution, death by execution, under the Roman Catholic and the Roman Empire for the gospel during the Reformation, but ten years later he's facing the plague. And let that inform our thoughts when we think of lyrics like, Let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also. We don't hang on to it. We're good stewards of our life, but we don't hang on to it like others would who have no hope. The body they may kill, or the body it will die. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. We're part of an eternal kingdom. We're in that kingdom now. We have eternal life right now. To die is simply to pass from the realm of earth into the very presence of Christ in heaven. It's those who have eternal life, whose eyes are set on eternity, who are best able to live and love and serve others in this shadow-length life we share on earth. So as we move through the current crisis, our crisis, we want to take the big picture view of things and live accordingly. And let me suggest a few of the things that I think sort of put on the front burner for us as we consider the virus, the economic fallout that's part of it, really the isolation that most of us are facing too as we quarantine or self-quarantine or as governments ask us to remain at home, minimize group activity so that we don't spread a virus. Let's think about a few things at least. Like generations before us, we're going to face trials and temptations to sin. 
God's word and the trials of those who've gone before us are meant to remind us what Christ-like wisdom, love, and charity look like. So we tell ourselves, guys, this virus, this crisis, this trial or temptation, it's specific, but like all others, it's simply here. We're dealing with the unexpected. Secondly, our carnal, and probably for many of us, our first response is likely to be like Israel's in the wilderness. It's to be deficient of faith, fixed on our own comforts, our own desires, the things that we want first and foremost, resulting in a thankless and complaining attitude. We want to stop things right there. Big picture, this is common to everyone. We're careful with our attitude and our words. We want to be thankful. We've got to refuse the temptation to unbelief, and that grumbling and complaining is a form of refusing to believe God and His Word. Choosing instead to believe our sovereign God is still working all things after His own purposes. And friends, that's you and me also. We're part of the all things. And this trial and your experience at home or alone or sick or frustrated, that's part of the all things God is working together for His own purposes. And third, Christ is the sum and substance of all wisdom, and Christians are meant to live in and out of our relationship with Christ, His life and Christ's wisdom. Now, many of us are going to spend more time at home in these days than perhaps we have in a long, long time. Can I encourage you to do two things together? Can I encourage you to meet the Lord in Scripture and to pray? Uh, We have more opportunity today. It's interesting in conversations I've had in the past, someone informed me they didn't have time to pray. They were supposed to read their Bible. We were in a Bible study group. I said, how many here read their Bible every day? One hand, two hands went up. I think it was Kathy and me. So it wasn't a problem of a lack of time. Guys, we have time. Let's meet with the Lord in Scripture and prayer. Let's give Him our troubles and our concerns. And also, hopefully you have a Lion and Lamb prayer calendar at home. Because day by day, we can pray for each other, we can encourage each other, we can text each other, we can email each other, we can Skype each other, we can Facebook each other. We can and we should stay in contact so that we're encouraging each other in this trial. Uh, To shelter in homes, by the way, is a prudent and wise thing to do for anyone whose health is compromised. If you're sick or you can't afford to get sick, it's Christ-like wisdom to be careful. For others of us who are healthy and would otherwise be out, to exercise care in our interactions with others so that we don't needlessly, carelessly spread disease, virus, or anything else. That's only loving. That's only Christ. There's no extra credit for that. And Luther, by the way, in his day, he castigated sternly those who blithely went from areas of sickness to the healthy because he knew and they knew they were carrying the plague with them. He he corrected them severely. Uh, to refuse fearfulness as a state of mind and instead embrace Christ's love, power, and sound mind, that's a biblical command, 2 Timothy 1, verse 7. Christ doesn't give us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. To pray for and practically help each other through all this is simply what Christ would do, and it's what his followers should do. Listen to this from 1 Peter 4, verses 8 and 9. Pete says, above all, above all, keeping love, or excuse me, keep loving one another. He says earnestly, and it means intensely, fervently, eagerly. That's our disposition, not to complain, but to serve each other. 
because he says love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. My wife tells her Sunday school classes, be winners, not whiners. That's the same thought there. Serve one another, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Guys, the darker the night, the brighter the stars shine. So let that be us. And really, let it be said of us that we faced our own trials and times, unlike Israel in the wilderness, that we've learned their lessons in the desert. We want to face the time, our trial, with faith in God our Father, serving Christ our Savior by the grace and power of God the Holy Spirit. This isn't on us. This is on God. God is our help. I want to close with this. I've recommended this psalm to many recently, and as I've been praying and thinking about this, this was one of the first scriptures that came to mind. This is Psalm 46. It's from the sons of Korah, and it's interesting. In the Numbers story, Korah is one of the rebels against God. He is struck dead uh, in a very dramatic fashion. You can read that when you're meeting with the Lord in your, in your Bible. But he was struck dead, but his sons survived, and they survived to life lived with faith. And they recorded, they wrote down some of what we have today as the Psalms. Psalm 46 is one of those. Listen to this. They start, God is our refuge and strength. It's, it's not the president, it's not the governor, it's not the economy. God is our refuge and strength. He's a very present help in trouble. He's always there. He's fully available. That's why we won't fear. And listen to this description of what the psalmist don't fear. We won't fear though the earth gives way. Think of an earthquake. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Though the sea's waters roar and foam. Though the mountains tremble at the sea's swelling. New American Standard adds swelling pride. So that's what's going on in the world around them. But this is their experience, verse 4. In contrast to the raging sea, the mountains sliding into the sea, verse 4. Contrast, there's a river. Not, not, a, not an awesome stormy sea, which typically is a picture in the Bible of the, the nations. The nations rage like the sea. But God's people, they're not in the stormy sea. They're next to a river. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Friends, the church is the dwelling place of God on earth today. God is in the midst of her. She won't be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. Now, the comparison, verse 6, is to the seas. So now it's the nations. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. There's uncertainty. God utters his voice, and the earth melts. God has all power. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. They wind down, verse 8, Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. On one hand, he has power to desolate. He makes war cease. On the other hand, to the end of the earth, he breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. He ends the raging seas of the nation. And they conclude this way. God speaks to them and he says, be still. Think of Moses there when he went. He went in the cleft of the rock and it was God in that quiet, still, small voice. Raging seas, mountains slipping into the sea. But nope, God's there. And he says, hey, be still. And know 
comprehend, understand, remind yourself that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations with all that's going on. I'll be exalted. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Friends, that's our hope. It's been the hope of every person who's trusted in God and in Christ throughout the ages, and it's ours as well. So with that, we want to bless God and we want to bless each other. Let's close in prayer. Father, I love the prayer out of number six. Uh, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace. Lord, might that prayer from their desert wanderings, might that be our prayer and our experience as well. Thank you that in Christ your face is upon us. You bless us richly and abundantly. You withhold no good thing from us, those who've come to shelter under the, the saving power, the saving grace of the Lord Jesus, just as Moses hid in the rock. Lord, you've hidden us. You've comforted us. You've spoken peace to us. Lord, help us with that confidence to honor you in our current trial, to bless and love, encourage and serve each other. Let it be said of us post-crisis, Lord, that we loved you and we loved each other well. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, that's it for this morning, so we'll join you again next week, and trust you'll be with us then. Until then, God bless and keep. Amen.